time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War episode 82 and today we've got a very special guest Alex Wellerstein. Alex is a historian of science, professor at Stevens Institute, expert on the history of nuclear weapons and uh, let's just get straight into it. Yeah okay great and where are you Jersey? Yeah I'm in Hoboken so right next to New York. Wow is there a big statue of Frank Sinatra in Hoboken that's what I've always wanted to know. So about half of things here are named after him. So we live, I'm not joking. So yeah. I live right off of Sinatra Drive. Uh, and we're right next to Sinatra Park. But the funniest thing is, uh, you know, they talk up how this is the birthplace of Frank Sinatra, et cetera, et cetera. And my wife and I uh, once went for a walk and we're like, let's go to the birth house. Let's see it. We've never done it. I've been told not to expect much, but, you know, let's just. Yeah. It's a very small town, so you can walk every. It's a mile by a mile. It's little, so we go wow. there, and it's literally an empty lot <laughs> with a plaque that says, "Once there was a house here that Frank Sinatra was born in." Wow! And it's literally it's one of the few empty lots in the whole dense city. Is it's just in between two other houses? It's just gone. They obliterated wow. whatever house it was. So wow was was it uh, a bomb nuclear bomb is that what happened yeah, i don't think so i don't really? know what why they did it uh, uh, there's probably some whole horrible boring local history as who owned the house and who tried to commercialize it or something but uh it was an empty lot that they were selling christmas trees out of uh, <laughs> wow. that's that's the frank sinatra birthplace and you can understand once you've seen his birthplace why he didn't want to come back to hoboken <laughs> uh, you know, he was born in a christmas tree lot apparently. he's like no i'm good i'm good over here in vegas no way yeah. 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 Well, that was my bad, bad attempt at segueing into uh, nuclear weapons. So, Alex, your your, <laughs> your Twitter bio uh, describes you as a historian of science, secrecy, and nuclear weapons. Is that uh, actually what you did your masters in? All those things. That's what I did my uh, PhD in. Yeah, um, I didn't get any masters. Uh, yeah, I did an undergraduate degree in the history of science, uh, and I wrote one of my theses on uh, nuclear weapons history, and then I got a PhD in the history of science, specifically on writing a dissertation on the history of nuclear weapon secrecy in the United States. So pretty much all that in a nutshell. Very cool. And, and your day job is uh, at Stevens Institute. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm a professor uh, in a field called science and technology studies, which is sort of an umbrella term for a lot of fields that are sort of humanistic, but study science and technology. So I'm a historian of science within that field. And uh, Stevens Institute of Technology is a uh, reasonably small, a couple thousand 
undergraduates, uh, uh, engineering school that's just across from uh, Manhattan in Hoboken, New Jersey. And uh, it's a nice place to work. Sounds lovely. And uh, before we get into talking about uh, the history of nuclear weapons, tell, tell everyone a little bit about Nuke Map. I'm sitting on it right now. I'm about to drop a bomb on Sydney, which uh, a, lot of, a lot of Australians would congratulate me for, I think. But uh, tell, us, tell us what Nuke Map is. Uh, Nuke Map was a tool I made a few years ago, and I continue to update it, that as, uh, allows you to see what the damage of a nuclear weapon would do on a place you are familiar with or perhaps a place you loathe. And uh, it uses Google Maps, so you put in any address or location, and then you select what weapon you'd like to go off, uh, and they can range from the historical weapons, say, used in World War II, to weapons developed in the Cold War, to weapons that exist today, uh, big ones, small ones, whatever. And you can set other parameters if you really want to get fancy with it. Um, and it'll show you how far various types of effects, like the blast or the the heat or uh, even the immediate radiation would go. It'll tally up uh, some casualties if you check the casualties box uh, uh, based on population density of uh, wherever you're blowing it up and where people might be. And it can even show you uh, some estimates as to how far the long-range fallout radiation would go. Uh, all of it was made with uh, declassified American uh, nuclear weapon information. I was in, I translated into JavaScript, which is the language that your web browsers use, and uh, made it play nice with Google Maps. So it's <laughs> been a, an unusually successful academic byproduct. And uh, I think it says uh, it was 180 million detonations and counting or something. I can't see that anymore, but it was there before. It's been used yeah, a it's lot. About have been used a lot. I, uh, it's been 150 million virtual detonations, which corresponds to about 25 million users. So that's that's a fair, again, pretty good for academic work. Uh, my, my favorite fact, I, I do look at the statistics. I can't see exactly who's doing what. I, I don't even want to know. But uh, I can see different countries and what they do. And it has been used by North Korea six times. So, you know, <laughs> just putting that out there. <laughs> Makes can I you ask wonder where, what you did with that. Can I ask where North Korea bombed? Maybe I need to move because I'm too close to D.C. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think they have that level of the oh, detail. Gotcha. Uh, with, with that few, North Korea's internet activity is very hard to track. They make it hard. So it's kind of amazing that Google can even just tell me that. But mm. uh it's uh, uh, so yeah. I don't know what they actually did with it. Be nice to know. So, what was the p purpose behind building NukeMap? Um, it's it's hard for people to wrap their head around nuclear weapons and what they can do, and say like the difference between the bomb dropped on Hiroshima and the, the first hydrogen bomb. And I would teach students, which is you know my day job and has been for a long time now, and and. You know, you tell them that in 1950, there were some scientists who thought the bombing Japan was totally acceptable, but to build a hydrogen bomb would be uh, crossing some kind of moral line, that it would be a weapon of genocide. And students and people today would rightly say, hey, one's a nuke, the other's a nuke. You know, how are you going to draw a line between them? You can see if you put in the Hiroshima bomb versus the first H-bomb, th there's a pretty big difference. The Hiroshima bomb, just to use New York as a reference point, since I'm staring at it right now, uh, would, would take out, say, a, a, a chunk of Manhattan Island, you know, just a nasty chunk of it. Whereas the first H-bomb, uh, which was 
10 million tons of TNT, that destroys all five boroughs in one weapon and a good chunk of New Jersey as well. And so you could you can use this kind of thing to ask either historical questions or present day questions uh, in a very easy fashion. I, I feel it's a useful tool for for people to resolve all sorts of different questions and even debates that they would have uh, to, to sort of wrap your head around these weapons. It's the hardest part for most people, including myself, to to really get a sense of these things. And uh, the, the, the equations for getting a sense of them have been declassified for a long time. But I don't know, most people can't, you know, pick up a slide rule and work out all that kind of uh, uh, stuff on the fly. I know I can't. So I've made a tool that makes it even easier for you to do it. You don't have to think about all the math. Yeah, for for the Aussies listening, I just uh, did the two comparisons um, on Sydney. So the uh, if we drop Little Boy on Sydney, your tool estimates uh, fatalities around 24,000 people. Uh, the Ivy Mike, the first H-bomb, estimated fatalities 800,000 people. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, I would call that, if we dropped it on Sydney, like a good start. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so a huge difference in uh, uh, in in impact there. Mm. It's quite shocking when you see it on a map with uh, the the size of the impact zone. Yeah, it, it's been useful. It's been more more popular than I expected when I made it. I thought it would be kind of interesting. Um, right now, the traffic kind of correlates with how nervous people are a lot of the time. So occasionally, the traffic goes up, up, up. People get really, you know, if North Korea tests some new weapon, people want to go on and see what does this new weapon do? What's it really mean to be 150 kilotons? What's it really mean to be 30 kilotons? Whatever. I mean, these numbers don't mean a whole lot unless, I mean, unless you've studied this stuff a long time. The difference between 30 and 150 or 1,000 kilotons is not going to be especially meaningful. So finding a way to translate that and to let people do it themselves, because because you can find, you know, newspapers will occasionally draw a map or say something or show it for your city. I I, I kind of like to give people the the ability to blow up whatever they want with it. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows that people learn better when you let them do that than if you just tell them things. Mm-hmm. Ah, uh-huh. engages different parts of the brain. Yeah, exactly. It's an active learning sort of thing. So. Uh, sorry, Ray, do you want to ask Alex anything before we jump into our timeline? No, I was going to ask the same question you did, but I was going to preface it with, I may have, you know, obliterated a couple of ex-girlfriends, but yeah, the, the question I had was pretty much why, and that makes sense. If you let, it's almost hands-on, people engage, and it's going to it's gonna stick with them more, and hopefully they have a healthy respect for what these things, because like you said, they're so abstract. Uh, hopefully people uh, actually learn something and appreciate after after going on your website. It's been interesting to look at some of the sort of statistical data that's generated by what people do. About half of the people, it varies by country, but half of them are basically blowing up their own country, right. um, which presumably that's people you know, trying it on places they've heard of, right? Seeing what would happen. But about half of what they do is to blow up other countries, sometimes countries I'm pretty sure they've never been to, like North Korea. Um, so there's different ways you can interact with it, ranging from the let me find out what this would do to me to what let me find out, to, as you as you put it, to what this would do to my ex-girlfriend, right? There's <laughs> there's th- These are both different ways of interacting with it. I, I try not to judge. Yeah, right. I, I, I prefer to judge, right? I think you should... Uh... <laughs> 
pull up a pull up a chair, Ray. So let's talk about why you feel the need to drop nuclear weapons on ex-girlfriends, Ray. Uh, I would think it would be the other way around, but. Uh... <laughs> Well, I found the website before they did, so I'm the one who dropped the bomb. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> Alex, um, I uh, earlier in the year, uh, I read a blog post that you wrote uh, at the beginning of the year in January, uh, a purely military target, Truman's changing language about Hiroshima. Now, where we're at in our timeline is we've just talked uh, about the Trinity test in extreme detail, we're gearing up for the bombing of Japan. We've um, we haven't really got into it yet, but we're going to get into it in great detail. And I, I was really interested in your perspective as somebody who has studied this issue uh, more deeply than than most about the the thinking behind the bombing of. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, from your understanding, at the uh, upper echelons of the American military and government in 1945, can you can you take us through this um, the the stuff that you talked about in this blog post first off? How the language changed over time with regards to Hiroshima and what underlies that, perhaps? You sure. Let's back up a little bit. Sure. Um, so one thing that is interesting about the atomic bomb is, is that uh, when, you, when we say like the upper echelon of the United States military or even political force, uh, w- one thing that's unusual about the atomic bomb is that, of course, it was kept extremely secret. Uh, there, there wasn't a large upper echelon who was talking about this for the most part. You, you have the people who are actively working on the bomb itself, so the scientists and the, the specific part of the military that's involved, right? The, the Manhattan Project people like General Leslie Groves. Um, you have a few political people who are involved. So the major political person involved here is the Secretary of War, uh, Henry Stimson. Uh, what's interesting from the, from and gets to be interesting for the, for the thing I wrote about is Truman himself is basically not involved. And sometimes people find that a little surprising, or they think of him as being much more hands-on. Uh, while Roosevelt was alive, Truman was not told about nuclear weapons at all. It was completely kept secret from him. Uh, and it wasn't really until, uh, so Roosevelt dies in like May 1945 or so, if I recall. Uh, Truman doesn't really get a briefing of any detail about the atomic bomb until uh, sometime in, in, in like mid-April 1945. And he's basically not in the loop until uh, July 1945, until right after the Trinity test. Then he becomes more important. So I, I only want to back up a little bit because so my, my research is on uh, how did Truman think about the bomb? Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of before and after it was used. And one of the things that I think is just really important to emphasize is that he really didn't for most of the time before. It's a really limited before that Truman is even really consciously aware. I mean, he gets told about it in April, but it's clear it doesn't really mean much to him until after they test it. Trinity really changes his views. He suddenly cares about the atomic bomb in a way he really didn't care about it before. Uh, so that's just something to, 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 to keep in mind is that we think of this as a sort of president-driven story. Um, 
even with Roosevelt, Roosevelt was much more hands-on with this stuff than Truman was, but even then, the, the presidents themselves were pretty remote, except for occasionally a question would come down that they needed to know about, and, and they would sort of swoop in and ask the president or get approval or something and then swoop back out. The, the real political figure who's in charge of most of the sort of day-to-day -day politics uh, and, and thinking about it is Stimson. And Stimson's sort of Truman's conduit to any kind of information about this. And Truman, obviously, I mean, he was aware of it going into Potsdam. We know that there's suggestions that even the timing of Potsdam was uh, organized by Truman to coincide with Trinity. So uh, he would know what cards he was holding uh, when it came to discussions with Stalin in particular. He has some understanding, but it's really, it's like one of a million little things in his world at that time. Sure. Yeah, it's not, it's not this thing where he kind of goes in being told this is a sure thing. Mm. He, he doesn't really know how to believe this, what, how serious this weapon is going to be. Um, some of the things he was told were, he was told that at times in which seems things seemed far more uncertain. So the briefing he did get in in uh, in April 45, uh, this is when they still thought that the implosion weapon, the same weapon they tested at Trinity, was going to be maybe a fourth as powerful as it actually was. Um, so there, there was a lot of things changing. Uh, what's really interesting to me is that he really, really gloms on to the news about Trinity. And, and we have records of people who are with him that he basically got these, this, this sort of report of what happened and read it aloud to numerous people with him and went over the details again and again and even sort of used some of the same language. He, he kept a journal at Potsdam and sort of used that same language in his journal. There's certain things that are very attractive to him. One of them is they kept repeating. He actually got in, he didn't really get in trouble, but it did. The FBI was informed about this later when he was not president. He kept liking to say like this huge explosion came from only thirteen and a half pounds of material. That's the plutonium, which was a classified number. So he kept telling people it's only thirteen and a half pounds. And the FBI at one point in the fifties was told like the president keeps saying this number. He really shouldn't be saying this number. <laughs> this is a top secret number. But they decided not to bother the president, the, the former president, with this. But he's really affected by Trinity. And so what I'm interested in, he's not really involved in the planning on how to use the bomb for the most part. He's not involved with the question of whether to use the bomb. Nobody's really saying, should we use the bomb? Everybody is uh, basically on board with the idea that, of course, you have this new weapon and you're going to use it. Everybody he's talking to anyway. Uh, they don't have this big deliberation that later people sometimes like to attribute, including himself, that say there's a big decision to use the bomb, this big weighing of the pros and the cons. Historians have known for a long time that wasn't really in the air at all. Everybody knew they were going to use the bomb. There were some questions over uh, when they might use the bomb. So are you going to like wait for the Russians to invade or are you going to drop it sort of immediately after Potsdam ends? Uh, Truman was in favor of dropping it sort of the minute that Potsdam ended. So that's one place where he sort of participated in the discussion. Uh, the most interesting question he participated in, I think, and one that I think it's uh, overlooked by historians a lot, um, there's a question of what the first target ought to be. 
Um, the military really strongly, very strongly wanted to drop the first bomb on the city of Kyoto. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, the former capital of Japan, um, a much larger city than Hiroshima. It's about a city of a million people. Hiroshima was about 250,000 people, 300,000 people. Um, and uh, uh, and their, their number two pick was Hiroshima. And this is where it doubles back again. Stimson, for various reasons, and we can get into them if you want, really does not want them to bomb Kyoto. He actually wants Kyoto to be totally preserved from any kind of bombing, much less atomic bombing. And so the way he gets that enacted, the military keep pushing back on him, the way he makes that real is he goes to Truman. So this is one of the only decisions Truman actually makes, which is, do I go with what Stimson recommends, which is to spare Kyoto, but bomb Hiroshima. And Truman does that. Yes, yeah, so because in that same article, uh, it blew me away when I read your sentence. There's a good reason to think that Truman did not understand that Hiroshima was a city with a military base in it and not some kind of uh, military installation. So what I think what you're saying is that Stimson used Truman to win the argument with the military to steer away from Kyoto and to have Hiroshima, which begs the question, why was he trying to preserve the larger city? Yeah. So we don't really have a great answer for why Stimson put a lot of effort into saving Kyoto. Mm -hmm. um, there's various sort of theories that have been put around. It's been hypothesized. And as far as I can tell, there's not any evidence of this, but th th that he went there on his honeymoon or something like that. He, he'd been to Kyoto. Uh, he used to Stimson before World War Two and all that was was under like way before, like under President Hoover was the uh, governor general of the Philippines. So he went to Japan in the 1920s. Um, and he went to a lot of cities. Uh, and we have his diaries, which is very nice. And he, you know, he has a nice time in Kyoto, but he has a nice time a lot of places. Um, Simpson himself gives these kind of various different arguments to Truman and to others, and he changes his arguments a bit as he sort of thinks will appeal to different people. Mm -hmm. So the one he ends up feeling most satisfied with with Truman is that if you bomb Kyoto, then the Japanese will hate the Americans. And if they hate the Americans, they're more likely to become friends of the Russians in the Cold War. So it's this kind of Cold War politic move before the Cold War to say, we want to keep the Japanese on our side, and the only way to do that is to not bomb Kyoto, which is kind of a strange logic. I mean, if you really wanted to keep them on your side, you might not bomb them in the first place or, you know, anything like that, right? But that kind of that that logic seems to work with Truman, which is interesting, right? Or at least Stimson perceives it to, to work with Truman. Uh there's other reasons that Simpson might have had sort of sentimental attachments to Kyoto or my sort of personal feeling is uh, uh, that Stimson really actually didn't like the firebombing of Japan. I don't really think he loved the idea of atomic bombing of Japan, though we thought it was necessary. Um, and there's a way in which uh, it, and we often think that the secretary of war, which is kind of like the secretary of defense, well, if he doesn't like it, can he stop it? Uh, th that position was much weaker at the time. It was more about like securing funding than it was about military uh -huh. tactics. E even the Secretary of Defense, up until Robert McNamara, was pretty a pretty weak position. It was you know not a not even always consulted on like military matters, things like that. Um, so I part of me thinks that this is Stimson's way of saying, you know, it's kind of like this idea of like you can't 
save everybody. So you save the one child or something like that, and that stands in for all the people you can't save or something like this. This is He saves Kyoto, and that makes it okay that he's presiding over the bombing of 60-something Japanese cities. It's the trolley problem at a higher level. I, um, From memory, uh, Truman wasn't a big fan of Stimson either. Didn't he uh, have some issues? I don't think they were like that close. They were not close at all. Mm. And and it's actually really funny in Stimson's diaries because Stimson interacted with Truman when Truman was a senator and was trying to find out information about all S1. this expenditure for this program called Manhattan. Yeah, S1. Mm. Mm. And, and Stimson's entries on Truman are scathing. I mean, they're saying he says things like Truman is untrustworthy and he's mean, right? And you know, and I don't like this guy at all, and he's terrible, and we got to keep him out. And then he becomes president. You know, it must have been a wonderful thing. Um, they didn't get around. I mean, Stimson was an old Roosevelt hand, and 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 I do mean old. I mean, and he was he was pretty elderly by World War II. He was, you know, very close to retirement. He was not like a sort of active, engaging figure. He, uh, uh, I, I think, you know, Truman wanted to keep a lot of the old people, Roosevelt people, on board because he didn't want to sort of change the course too much. He changed a few things. Um, he wasn't the most influential person in Truman's sort of uh, uh, circle. Somebody like uh, uh, James Burns, who had been Truman's friend in the Senate and then became the Secretary of State, was much more persuasive with Truman on many issues. What, what's interesting, though, is that on the atomic bomb, Truman came to rely on Stimson very heavily, and he himself said this. I mean, Stimson wasn't even invited to Potsdam. Um, uh, they, they engineered it so he wouldn't even be there, and he just showed up because that's the kind of guy he is, which is, you know, it's a, it's a move, right? <laughs> and then at one point, he's the guy who gives Truman all the information about the atomic bomb and talks to him about the the deeper questions of should we tell the Russians and how should this be used and all that. And Truman ends up saying to him, I'm really glad you did come to Potsdam because I, I don't think anybody else here would be able to talk to me with as much depth about the bomb as you do and have as much connection to all the people in, in Washington who are involved with that, et cetera, et cetera. So on this issue, they did sort of bond, which is interesting. Um, and then Stimson retired not too long after the war ended, but, um, but yeah, they weren't close. Mm. So if we get back to this, um, the, the decision-making or as it sounds lack thereof about dropping the bomb on Hiroshima in your article, you sort of make the case, if I understand it correctly, that after the bomb had been dropped, Truman's first public pronouncements seem to suggest very strongly that Hiroshima was a purely military target. And then his language changes uh, over the yeah. next uh, few weeks. Yeah. So, so to, to flesh it all out, Stimson goes to Truman and says, we shouldn't bomb Kyoto, we should bomb Hiroshima. And they have, they have multiple conversations about this. Stimson, at the at the end of the final sort of conversation, which is the day before they finalize the target list, um, Stimson is sort of triumphant. He's able to write back to the people, the military people in the United States and say, I've got approval from the highest authority that Kyoto is not to be the target. You know, send me your new list of targets and I'll approve them. Um, they send them a new list, which is Hiroshima. 
uh, Kokura, Niigata, and added because Kyoto was taken off, Nagasaki wasn't on the list originally. So this is how Nagasaki comes in, just sort of a literally written in by hand on one of the drafts. Um, and he's very pleased. And he writes in his diary how Truman totally understood that this was this great real politic move and it was going to make things great in the post-war. What's, what's wonderful is we also have Truman's side at the same meeting because he kept this journal at Potsdam that he was going to use, I believe, to uh, write a speech that he was going to brief Congress on because he couldn't meet with Congress uh, when they got back because they were going to be on at recess. So he had come up with a scheme that when he and he got approval from congressmen to do it this is like a little bit too much detail but he that he was going to take notes on this what happened at Potsdam and then give this sort of radio address to the nation and that was going to be the equivalent of him addressing congress anyway truman writes on his that they've made this great decision about the atomic bomb they are going to use it to destroy a purely military target and not a city and not kill women and children and specifically he says women and children are not going to be killed and uh which is kind of an amazing thing to say, given that he just approved to kill, destroy Hiroshima, which is does have a military base in it. It's true, but is a city and has you know ninety percent of the people killed by the atomic bomb are non-combatants, right? So historians have looked at. I'm not the first person to find this diary, but historians have said like, is he lying to himself? Is he lying to the future? Uh, my thesis is. Maybe he actually believed what he wrote and he got confused by this conversation he had with Stimson. I think Stimson emphasized the sort of civilian nature of Kyoto uh, and the military nature of Hiroshima and maybe emphasized them a little too much. Kyoto actually did have military facilities in it. Uh, and Hiroshima, of course, does have non-military facilities in it. But I think in Stimson's attempt to get Truman to see a difference between the two, he may have raised the contrast, so to speak, on these two things. So my argument here is that Truman actually, the decision he thought he made was not to use the bomb. That was already forgiven. He thought he made the decision not to use the bomb on a city. Hmm. Mm. But he was wrong. <laughs> right. Uh, not to get ahead of the game, but just real no. quick to follow up on that. Um, so when it comes to Nagasaki, I mean, what, what does that have in it? Do, do they know at this point they're pretty much going after civilians? I, I'm just curious to compare it to, to the first bombing. Yeah, the, the people who are actually choosing the cities and actually working out the logistics of this, they totally know it's cities. And even Stimson knows their cities. Stimson knows this. He's not ignorant about any of this. Um, right. I think Truman is the only one who doesn't know this. And his, again, his his access to information about this is extremely mediated uh, and, and notably completely mediated by Stimson in particular. And I don't think Stimson's trying to mislead him. That's not that's not my sense of what Stimson is, is getting at here. But I do think he may have inadvertently misled him. And Truman is not, shall we say, a super intellectually curious president. He's the last president who did not have a college education. That's, I mean, not the right. worst thing. But uh, he, he, he's also, his style is to be sort of decisive and blunt and not to sort of probe for details. He doesn't care about details. Like other people got to deal with the details. He's right. just making the one big choice. And he himself admits that he's, he's kind of amazed that it works out as well as it does, this approach to governance. So I'm not trying to criticize Truman here. You know, you, if you wanted to, you could say maybe he could have asked a few more questions before dropping nuclear weapons. But uh, 
to be fair, he had a lot of things to worry about. He was trying to like figure out Poland, right? I mean, this is this is a sure. this is not the easiest time in his life. Uh, oh yeah, so so on Nagasaki, the, the, the people who put the, make the list together know that they're all cities, hundred uh, percent. And uh, Truman is not going to necessarily know what they're going to do with these weapons without more information. I don't think that Hir- Hiroshima is not a city name that was pretty well known at the time. Uh, you know, Tokyo was, Kyoto might've been, uh, Nagasaki was a little bit well-known mostly because, uh, it's the furthest Southern Southwestern sort of target in Japan. So they would say things were going to have targets between Tokyo and Nagasaki. Right. But most Mm -hmm. of these places, it's not clear that they would have resonated with an American who wasn't an expert. You know, my, my, um, First impulse when you say that Truman um, was sort of uh, not aware of the tr- true civilian population of Hiroshima is I'm thinking, well, where's where's his chief of staff? Where's Leo in his ear saying, uh, actually, Mr. President, etc., etc.? Uh, but, of course, he didn't have a chief of staff. There was no chief White House chief of staff uh, until about a year later, I think, right? The, the first... Uh, uh, White House Chief of Staff was John Steelman, who worked for Truman, but he he didn't get the job until 1946. So he <laughs> maybe Truman uh, went. You know what? I really need someone who's uh, <laughs> sitting by my side, uh, uh, qualifying the information that these guys are telling me. Yeah. Well, and and one question you could ask is, would it have made a difference if he had known? I mean, yeah. I think he probably still would have dropped the bomb anyway. Uh, though I think he would have maybe talked about it differently, and his reaction to it might have been a little bit different. Uh, and again, what, I mean, it, even if there were people around him who knew, which, which there certainly were, I, I'm sure General Marshall understood these things, right? Uh, I don't think any of them cared about killing a city. So, I mean, the irony is that Truman seems to have cared way more about that than anyone else in this whole process. But, of course, he makes the exact wrong decision on the on the basis of that. So... Let's uh, talk a little bit about the options that they had available to them. We haven't got into this in great detail yet, but we're we're about to go on this journey, and you know I'm probably going to rely on Gara Perovitz's book a little bit, and some of the some of the people that have really gone into depth to investigate the decision. Um, but the perspective that I've currently got, based on reading in the past, is that. The the Japanese, and we've talked a little bit about this in recent episodes, the certain elements of the Japanese government were trying to surrender well before uh, the bombing of uh, Japan. And uh, there are certain people who think that uh, once the Soviets uh, ended their... Um, non-aggression pact with Japan and, and entered declared war against them, which was scheduled, as we know, so sort of the, the middle of August, the, that this would have happened, that they would have given up the ghost anyway. They were, they were out of supplies. They were on their knees. Um, and, it, you know, really the bombing may not have had a great impact in, in the end of the day. What's your thoughts on that based on the research that you've done on how important the bombing was versus Russia, uh, the Soviets entering the war in Japan's decision to surrender. 
Yeah, it's a hard one. You're actually asking two questions. One is how important was the bomb versus like how important what was the bomb necessary, which are slightly different. Um, one of them you could imagine uh, uh, like no bomb at all. What would the results perhaps have been versus the other one is saying the bomb might have mattered, but how did it relatively matter? So in, in terms of relative mattering, um, they, they did pay attention to Hiroshima when it happened. Uh, on a, you know, they, they got the news of Hiroshima a little bit afterwards, after it happened, because the communications had been off. We're talking about the Japanese here, the high command. Um, and they sent people to go see, uh, is this for real? Because, you know, it's World War II. Every, every side has propaganda of various sorts. And you don't just believe the United States when they say, we dropped a super weapon on a city and destroyed it. They say, okay, we'll send some scientists out. So they do. Um, but otherwise, they don't react very strongly immediately. Some of them in their like diaries and conversations that they had that there's some sort of record of uh, were affected by it and said, oh, this is bad. And some of them said, great, another way to bomb us, even if it's true, right? They've been bombing us now for a while. Doesn't change anything. Uh, they got information back about that it was an atomic bomb and that it was pretty awful um, on August 8th from the scientists, um, I think on the evening of August 8th, uh, who went there. And uh, they didn't really do anything as a response to getting that information, not immediately, but later that same night is the is the Soviet invasion of Manchuria, uh, uh, which is very clever, by the way. The, the, this is just a fun story. The, 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 the way the Russians did it, I always marvel at the sort of chutzpah of it, right? They, they, they finally bring in this poor guy, uh, Sato, this ambassador in, in Moscow, to talk with Molotov. This guy, Sato, has been asking for an audience with Molotov now for months, and he wants to go and present the scheme of maybe the Russians brokering some kind of surrender or conditional surrender, et cetera. And Molotov basically says, let, let me cut you off right there. <laughs> Read this first, hands him a piece of paper. The piece of paper says, we declare war on you, and we're going to invade tomorrow. <laughs> And wow. Sato is like, great, uh, you know, just lost my job, right? Maybe I have to go kill myself <laughs> or something, right? Like, it's like, all right. So he goes back and uh, he's thinking, well, at least I have like a day to figure this out, what I'm going to tell my bosses. And the Russians meant tomorrow Transbaikal time zone. So it started in an hour. <laughs> and he's like, this is great. This, I mean, could you, could you make this up, right? <laughs> that the Russians would not specify the time zone of tomorrow and then start oh. almost immediately after giving the message. Real jerks. Anyway, um, you know, that's Molotov for you, right? Uh, anyway, uh, so they get news of that. That does get their attention very immediately. Um, I've seen some work actually that's come out relatively recently that, uh, the Japanese army staff had actually done studies well before the summer of 1945, well before even, I think, that late in the war, uh, about what the effect of a Soviet invasion would be if the Soviets renounced their neutrality. And they concluded that if the Soviets renounced their neutrality, there is no way we can connect, continue this war. We, we will lose our supply bases in, in Korea. We will, we will just get stomped by them. Um, so they were thinking about this for a while. This isn't like a totally brand new idea, uh, but it clearly got their attention. So this is what caused them to call together a big meeting to discuss the future of the war. While they're at that meeting, the Nagasaki bomb uh, bombing occurs and they get the news of it. Uh, it doesn't seem the Nagasaki bombing doesn't seem to have changed their opinion one way or the other. By the end of this meeting, they have sort of concluded that 
they're going to offer a conditional surrender. They're going to preserve a position for the emperor still, but otherwise they're going to say they basically they say we're going to agree to Potsdam except for as long as it doesn't impinge on the emperor, and they send that on August tenth. Uh, the Americans get that right back, say, thanks, but no thanks. We need unconditional surrender. The Americans continue conventional bombing. There's an attempted coup by uh, junior officers in uh, Japan that gets put down. After all of that, on August 14th, the emperor finally says, you know what, we're done here. I'm just going to surrender and I'm going to say it doesn't matter about the emperor because I am he and what are you going to do about that? And that's what puts it out. So the point is, two atomic bombs and a Soviet invasion, it still takes quite a little bit of work to get to the surrender, the unconditional surrender point. Did the Nagasaki bomb have any effect whatsoever that we can tell? Probably not. Nobody went into that meeting with any different opinions than they walked out as a result of the Nagasaki bombing. Can you disentangle the atomic bombs from the Soviet invasion? I mean, the Soviet invasion clearly got their attention, but the, the bombs got some of their attention too. So. Where I end up with all of this is saying, look, there's a separate question of whether there were alternatives that could have been pursued that would have worked without the dropping of the bomb or before the bomb. But with what happened, <coughs> sorry, with what actually occurred, I find it very hard to to try to disentangle these events. It's clear that 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 the invasion mattered a lot to them. Some of them also were quite struck by the atomic bombing, too, at least the Hiroshima one. So some combination of the two seems to have changed their position rather quickly. Hard to know which one. And again, that's a separate question from, like, could the Americans have done things other than bombing to see if they could have secured a peaceful surrender they're happy with before? That's a separate, that's a sort of more speculative question than the how important were they? And the answer is they seem to have been somewhat important, but I think Americans in particular often overlook the, the, the importance of the Soviet invasion. So we end up sort of, if we're trying to sort of debunk the sort of bad way of thinking about it, so we end up emphasizing the Soviet invasion for that reason. Mm. If, if I can ask a question in the interest of time, kind of on the tail end of the two dropping, uh, the two bomb, two bombings, um, could you, could you explain the term to us, nuclear taboo, and what that means, and, and when did it come about? So this goes back a little bit to the other the other thing. Um, let me back up with Truman real quick here. Yeah. Um, so my argument is that Truman went into this thinking that they were blowing up a base and not a city. Right? He thought he had made this choice. And you might ask, where do we see evidence of this? Some of this is in that journal I mentioned. Um, the first statement that he wrote on the atomic bombs, which is to say not the official statement that came out under his name right after Hiroshima. That was not written by him. That was written by a speechwriter. Mm -hmm. um, and he didn't have any input into that, really. Um, but he did write the second press release, like directly by his hand, I think, from those notes. Also emphasized this purely military target. And he had other things that he did during this time, this, which really make it seem like he thought it was a as he put it, purely military target. And I, I always emphasize the purely is a pretty strong designation for something that we now know is actually a city, right? Uh, when would he have learned otherwise? The first damage assessments come in on August 8th. So we know Stimson brought him reports on this. There were also in newspapers at the time, uh, stories about th hundreds of thousands of Japanese being killed. There would have been no way after August 8th for him to not know it was a city and that civilians have been the primary uh, mm -hmm. uh, victims. 
And his language changed completely. He, he went from talking about the atomic bomb as the best thing ever made to something that's this more sort of tortured sort of thing. He sometimes, uh, at one point, he, he, he described it as, you know, the most efficient means of mass slaughter of women and children ever devised. And he's not saying that because he's proud of killing women and children. He really... There's something immoral about killing women and children in Truman's scheme of things. Um, and he starts talking about it as something he had to do and that this whole language of uh, uh, having to do it to save lives. He, he feels he has to justify it in some way, maybe to himself. Uh, what's interesting about Truman, he never says that he didn't want to use the bombs. He, he's sort of the biggest defender of having to do it, right? Mm -hmm. But he never wants to use them again. He makes an order on August 10th that no nuclear weapons are ever to be used without his explicit approval again. I don't think he knew that the Nagasaki bombing was going to happen. I think that that was that decision was made, the decision to move up the date of that and to have it be so soon, that was made by military people, not by with, with no consultation to him. Uh, his attitude in the Cold War is almost uh, revulsion. So he, he really doesn't trust the military with nuclear weapons. He actually physically uh, uh, denies the military access to nuclear weapons. So over the course of the Truman administration, um, you know, he builds up this, he, he, this nuclear infrastructure gets built up to build more weapons. And they build, I don't know, I don't have the number from, something like 900 nuclear weapons by the time he's done with his administration up from, you know, two, three. The total number of nuclear weapons that he allows the military to have is nine. Mm. So all of those 800 and so weapons, 890, are kept in civilian hands, and the military cannot access them. And the civilians have guns and are told to shoot the military if they try to take the bomb without permission. And the generals do not like this, including Eisenhower. The generals say... Come on, we, we have to be ready for war. How are we going to be ready for war if you don't let us have the weapons? And Truman is adamant that this is not a regular weapon. This is not a weapon that you use in war like guns and bullets. This is a weapon that kills women and children. Again, this phrase he keeps coming back to. you know. And again, I point out that in his early decision about the bomb, he was so proud that he was not going to kill women and children. And so now everything bad about the bomb is associated with the killing of women and children. Mm -hmm. Um he really feels that the bomb is not a weapon to be used. And so this is maybe some of the origin of this idea of a nuclear taboo. And the nuclear taboo, uh, there's a great historian named Nina Tannenwald who's written a really, uh, she's at Brown University, she's written a book on the history of the taboo, which is great. It's the idea that nuclear weapons cannot be used. Not the practical matter of like, I don't have weapons and I can't use them, and not the matter of just deterrence, right? It's not just I can't use them because they'll get used back on me. It's the idea that you shouldn't use them even in circumstances where you could use them. So we could have used weapons in the Korean War, and there's no way the Soviet Union had any way to harm the United States. It barely had any way to harm our interests, right? We could have used weapons against China at various points in the 1950s over the Taiwan Strait crisis and not expected a Soviet response. The Soviets were so far uh, 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 behind us in terms of development that they would have had no way to strike the continental United States, and we could have wiped them off the map, and they knew this, right? Um, we could have deployed weapons at various points in history, and we didn't. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons, right? It's not just a feeling of revulsion. Some of it's, it's you know, alienate our allies and, you know, things like that. 
uh, escalate things, such as the case of the Korean War, right? But some of it is this idea that the weapons are somehow in this sort of separate category of, of munition, that, that nuclear weapons, kind of like the way Americans in particular feel about chemical weapons and biological weapons and things, that there's just something wrong uh, about using them. So this is what Tannenwald identifies as the taboo. Uh, and if you believe this exists, not everybody does. Some people say, well, I, I don't think it has anything to do with these like emotional judgments. I think it's just cold, hard logic. I, I don't think that quite works, but I can see the argument. Uh, but if you believe it exists, uh, I see some of the origins of that in Truman. If you had had a different president in place right then, if Eisenhower had been president in 1945, I think the bomb still would have been used, and I think it's very likely that he could he might have used them with the when the Korean War started or other conflicts. Eisenhower, especially at the beginning of his presidency, changed by the end of it, really believed that nuclear weapons were just like another weapon. They were just something that the army had to maybe use and might offset conventional forces of the Soviet Union, et cetera, et cetera. Truman didn't believe this. And I think it's actually very crucial that for this period of time, from 1945 to 1952, when he's president, uh, the person who is basically running the show on whether nuclear weapons would ever be used again, believed in his heart in some way that nuclear weapons should never be used again. Again, that the should is the matter. It's a normative judgment. Mm. All right, Alex, let's just wrap this up maybe with one last question. Um, one of the things that's fascinated me over the years is when I talk to Americans and even some American historians about the decision to drop the bomb or the bombs on Japan at the end of World War II, there seems to be this idea that it was absolutely 100% necessary, which doesn't seem to be the case when I read the histories of it. Can you tell me how that became the orthodox version of the story and why it's persisted for the last 70 years? Yeah. So there's maybe two ways I'd answer that. One is the sort of more historian, like how did that narrative develop and evolve? Uh, the, the, the modern justification for using the bombs, right? That, and, and even the modern version of what we might call the orthodox version of the, quote, decision to use the bomb, right? Uh, uh, in which... Truman and his advisors weigh this question very heavily and decide there's no way around it. This is the only way that's likely to work. And they, with a heavy heart, drop the bombs, right? That is a creation of uh, Henry Stimson, uh, Leslie Groves, the general who helped build the bombs, um, and some other people related, who were close to that, um, that work. Uh, in uh, 1946 and 1947. And the reason they made this story, which we now know has a lot of errors in it, some explicit and some just by omission, is because people in the United States were starting to have doubts. So a number of military officers in, the, in 1946, including Eisenhower and also Leahy and, and, and several others, started writing memoirs and saying things where they said, well, I don't think the atomic bomb needed to be used at all. Japan was on the ropes. We, we totally had beaten them back with conventional forces. This was just something else that, that was unnecessary. Uh, and they had their own reasons for making that argument. They were afraid that if the bomb got all the credit for this, then you might think it was okay to defund the military or something like that, which kind of was Eisenhower's idea, but they didn't want this. Um, in any case, this, this sort of orthodox narrative became a sort of rallying cry 
uh, over the years and interestingly sort of shifted political valences. It used to be Republicans who were critical of the bombing uh, in, in Truman's day because Truman was a Democrat, right? Uh, and, it, and it shifted, especially by the 90s when it became part of sort of an American culture war, right? It was about how you remembered World War II. Were Americans the good guys or were we war criminals? And most Americans, if you give them that option about World War II, will pick the good guys. And I guess that makes sense. I guess this dovetails into the second answer. A lot of Americans, especially Americans today, had uh, grandparents or parents who were in World War II to some degree, and nobody wants to think of grandpa as being a war criminal, right, or being complicit. It's like definitely not on people's minds that that's a good idea. Even the Germans don't like to do that, right? I mean, nobody likes to do that. Um, and also, in my experience, lots of Americans have the have the experience of that said same grandpa telling them, oh, I was on the ship, going to be shipped out to invade Japan and the atomic bomb saved my life. And I believe that these people believe that, like they were told that they were explicitly told your life is here and your grandchildren are here and your children are here because we use the atomic bombs. And people believe that very strongly, even though that's like the worst way to think about doing history. Right. And I've had really awkward conversations with people where I've said, well, I'm sure you're grandfather believed that. I mean, he was told that, but like, mm -hmm. what does he know? Right. I mean, he wasn't in the room where Truman made any decisions, right? Why would he know the history of this? Right. Just because grunts don't know what's going on at the top. That's the nature of being a grunt. That's okay. Uh, people are really in the United States wrapped up and in, in not questioning those things. And my way of trying to get into this in a way that that can actually be heard, because there certainly are people like, say, Garl Paravitz, right, who writes a very strong book that says the opposite, right? And I think maybe goes too far in that direction, makes makes Truman and all these people seem more conniving than they really were. In, in my view, of these these people are not conniving. They're, if anything, they're kind of dunces, right? They're not. It, it's a different view of things. They're haphazard, um, not not strategic. Um, th th those people are. It, it, I mean, I don't want to say they preach to the choir, but they're not convincing people who are kind of in the middle, right? And so I've tried to think, of how do you convince people who are kind of in the middle to think about this a little differently? One is to emphasize that, like, that there are kind of alternatives out there, and, and and you would expect there to be alternatives. Like, why would the only option be drop two atomic bombs within three days of each other on cities, right? Why not drop one bomb and then wait a week? Why not, uh, which was the original plan anyway, why not do one as a demonstration? I mean, this was something talked about and rejected, but you can imagine talking about it. Why not wait until the Russians declare their uh, lack of neutrality and then see what happens? I mean, if the goal was to save lives, which it wasn't, uh, then maybe those would have been acceptable alternatives. Um, I think Americans are really wrapped up in the exceptionalism. And I think, again, World War II was like the last war in which Americans like unambiguously felt like the good guys. And mm -hmm. if you go in and, and imply that they're, you know, yeah, I mean, relatively speaking, yes. I mean, like, obviously <laughs> the Japanese were doing terrible things. Obviously the Germans are like, evil got it uh but to to go in there and say well even the good guys you know may have massacred women and children by the thousands uh it, it makes people uncomfortable and maybe it should uh, it i i personally would like it if americans were a little more uncomfortable even with world war ii it ended on a pretty dark note um we we had to 
I, I'm not saying we shouldn't have gotten involved with it, but it's hardly a model for like a perfect war. It ended with the Cold War. So obviously things were a little unresolved. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did do things like, you know, intentionally burn hundreds of thousands of civilians to get our political aims. Uh, the question I like to ask my undergraduates are is, is not, should we have used the atomic bombs? But under what conditions is it morally acceptable for a nation to burn tens of thousands of civilians to get their aims? And I'm not saying the answer is no conditions. Maybe you have to reason it through and say, look, the only way we could have won World War II against an enemy like Japan was to burn 67 of its cities and then drop two atomic bombs on them. Fine, make that argument if you want, but just be aware of what you're, what you're making the argument for. Don't sort of dress it up as like some kind of neat thing we had to do to win and it was no problem. I mean, you know, is, in what way is it different than throwing 100,000 civilians into a pit and dumping gasoline on them and lighting a match? I mean, it's the equivalent of what we did on not just Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and, and that should make people uncomfortable, even if they ultimately conclude that it was the right thing to do at the time. It should still make them uncomfortable. Mm. War is all hell. Particularly when your current administration uh, seems to be fine with the idea of our bombs are bigger and better than your bombs and uh, we're ready to use them at the drop of a hat. That bothers me. I mean, that does bother me, especially since said person who said such things are is actually capable of dropping them at the drop of a hat. I mean, it's, it, he's, he's not bluffing when he says that he has the control to do that. He actually does. It's a great system. Um, <laughs> we've set it up, and, and you could trace this back to Truman as well, as we with the, to double it around. Truman's insistence on the president as being the only arbiter of this thing um, didn't it, it, it went through some ebbs and flows after Truman's administration, but that, that essentially is the guiding philosophy that still exists today. The president is the only person who can uh, uh, order uh, such an attack. Uh, what, what bothers me more, though, since fortunately the odds of that are not super high, though you know I wish they were a little smaller, and I do some work on that stuff too, uh, what, what bothers me more is the American, the ease in which Americans enter into new wars. Uh, we, 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 we turn every conflict into World War II metaphors. So Saddam Hussein, who is he like? Hitler, right? Uh, Kim Jong-un, who is he like? Hitler, right? Like we turn everything into a World War II metaphor and then we say, thus, we got to intervene. And I'm actually, I'm not a pacifist. Uh, I'd be nice, I, I would do think we should think about how we would pursue a world in which war was itself more taboo and unlikely and things like that. But that's not the same thing as saying, there's absolutely never a time in which war is something you have to engage with. I, I think if you're going to make an argument for a war the United States had to get into, World War II is, is your best argument in the entire history of the United States, right? And yet, <laughs> uh, uh, it was still really ugly and really problematic and raises all sorts of moral and ethical questions and is not something that we should be holding up as if it were a Disney version of things. It was uh, a really nasty amount of slaughter by all sides, including the allies, uh, and that should make us uncomfortable. And the fact that after... Let's imagine we hold World War II up as like the war that went well, which, again, I think is not a great way to think about it. But let's imagine we do it. Every other war that the United States has been in since then has been a total mess. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, and even the ones where we, quote, win have been really messy and, and un it's not clear that they're actually 
working out in our interests and it's not clear that getting involved was the best thing to do and all that kind of stuff. I really wish more Americans, when they thought about war, would say like, you know, I think the last thing America needs at the moment, especially at this current moment, when we're already still in at least two wars, right? The last thing we need is a new war in the Middle East or a new war in Asia, right? Like this is this is a terrible idea. And yet culturally, Americans find it so easy to sort of rally behind the flag in those circumstances. And I do think their memory of World War II was part of that. I think if our memories of World War II were more like the Japanese memories of World War II or the German memories of World War II, uh, we'd be less enthusiastic to, to start another one. Alex Willestein. <laughs> Willestein, Willestein. How do you steen? You steen it? I'm a steen. You're a steen. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. People can check you out at... Uh, your blog, blog.nuclearsecrecy.com, and you'll find NukeMap. Just Google NukeMap, honestly. It's probably easier than me reading the thing out. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for, fun with it. Thanks very much for your time, Alex. Yeah, happy to be here. This is fun. Descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 